Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, all right. Good morning, C4. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online in Ontario and around the world. We're glad you're with us this morning. Got a Bible this morning. Love you to turn to Mark chapter 4 digitally or on paper. That would be great. Well, today is our last series, our last sermon in this series called Encounters with Jesus, where we have been going over uh, all sorts of different encounters that Jesus had with, with people. We've been looking at six very different people that have encountered Christ. And the reason why we've been doing this series is actually for a lot of reasons. Number one, our goal as a community was first and foremost to see how Jesus interacted with a variety of people and learn from him so we can do do the same with those type of people in our families and in our friendships and, of course, in our workplaces. Also, you might be the person that I'm preaching about today. You might be the type of person Jesus is speaking to, and at the end of this message, you will be given an opportunity to meet him. This series has been a visionary series in the sense it has been preparatory for us to prepare ourselves for the many diverse groups of people that Jesus has been bringing and is going to bring among us. And then, of course, at the end of every sermon in great humility, with no arrogance at all, we stand and we pray for that type of person in our life and in our region that Jesus would break in. Now, it's been quite a ride, and we all know that it's been quite an experience to see how Jesus interacts with so many different people. Nicodemus, we started with him. He came asking. Uh, the adulterous woman was forced to come. Saul, who later became Paul, was confronted by Jesus. The rich young ruler came begging. He went away sad because he wasn't willing to give up his wealth for eternal life. Last week we talked about Zacchaeus, the curious but not really seeking man who suddenly Jesus decides to meet and in that moment he actually becomes a true son of Abraham. But today we move to an unbelievably different sort of part of the story, a very different person. The person we're going to explore today cannot seek and he cannot ask and he cannot beg and he can't even climb up a tree and watch from a distance. See, this person is not under the category of friend, not insider, not outsider, not enemy, not seeker, not skeptic. Today we meet someone who is a slave. But this is not a normal slavery. No slavery is good, but this is not a normal slavery. This person is not enslaved to a human being. This person is not enslaved to a worldview or an idea. This person is enslaved to incarnate prehistoric evil. This is how I believe the story may have begun. Can you imagine it? Jesus had spent the day speaking to crowds about the kingdom of God. The sun is starting to set. The crowd is talking or leaving. I'm sure the disciples wanted to go home, to eat, to sleep, to hang out. And then Jesus turns to his inner circle and says, Boys, it's time. Peter, James, and John look at each other and say, Time for what? Jesus looks at them and said, actually, we need to do something, and we need to do it tonight. Actually, I need to cross the lake this evening. Again, hungry or angry or tired or bored, this is probably not what they wanted to hear after a long day of work. Now, yes, many of them are experienced fishermen, experienced sailors, and it's only a two-hour ride they know across the lake. But can you just hear them saying, really? Can we do this tomorrow, Jesus? And Jesus says, no. We must do this now. Well, they get in the boat and they begin to cross silently. 
Time for what? Time for what? The father, if you know the backstory, has now given Jesus the go-ahead for the first time in his ministry to cross into non-Jewish territory. And so that means that the good news of Jesus for the first time is going to move outside of a Jewish area and start going into a non-Jewish area. So the good news and the incarnate word, so the written word and the living word for the first time is going to be offered to the world. In the middle of this encounter, we are going to see the Father's kingdom expressed through Jesus, and the sovereignty is going to be over sea, wind, demonic, and death, vanquishing all the powers that are hostile against God and keep us in bondage as humans. As the sun was setting, I wonder if Jesus looked across that lake and sensed what was coming. It would almost be like, can you imagine Peter watching Jesus and Jesus is looking off and he's not just enjoying the sunset. There's, a, there's an intensity because as we will learn in the story, in the unseen world, there is actually something looking back, gearing up for a fight to the death because those on the other side know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming. Will they keep rowing? It's a normal night. Suddenly. Suddenly, all the sailors in the boat something's ha- know something's happening. It's that smell. It's that feeling. It's that trouble. They know instinctually when a storm is brewing. And suddenly, a storm, it says, comes up. And as Peter, I'm sure, turned to tell Jesus to his shock, he finds Jesus sleeping in the boat. Isn't that nice for you? It records like this in Mark 4.35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. Verse 37. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. The nautical instinct of those who were sailors moved from a bad feeling to fear to panic to outright hysteria. The storm called furious squall, when we read it in English, we miss the power of it. It actually means a tornado-like whirlwind that descends down and brings disaster. This hellish storm came in all of its fury unexpectedly to the point that this boat begins to sink. This boat is waterlogged. And in the chaos of this, Jesus is sleeping even as the water is spraying and landing all over him and all over them. It says in verse 38, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Now just stop for this. He's snoring, right? He's doing his thing. And a whirlwind-like storm is coming. Experienced sailors are in panic and hysteria. And the disciples woke Jesus up and said to them, yelling, I'm sure, at the top of their life, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Sailors don't use hyperbole and exaggerated language. We are going to die. Like people in the boat at this moment are going, this is it. My lungs are going to fill with water and I'm going to suffocate and die. Jesus, don't you care? So water spraying all over the place. Jesus, I'm sure, was not startled by the storm, but by the yelling of his disciples. His unconcerned sleep is not because he took a sleep aid, was not out of the exhaustion of the day. It was deeper than that. It's more profound than that. It's unnatural. His sleep was not exhaustion. His sleep was a living sign of his trust in the protection and the sovereignty of his father. So Jesus sits up. 
chaos, all hell is breaking loose. He grabs the side of the boat. And he got up and it says this. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, be quiet and be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. I want you to imagine this because this is a historic event. All chaos, rain, death, tornado-like experience. And Jesus gets up and goes, that's enough of that. Silence. And suddenly you're like in Lake Muskoka with a loon. What? Absolute control. Now the words rebuke, quiet, and be still matter. It gives us the full picture. It reveals the nature of the storm. Many of you who've grown up in church don't know the true nature of this storm. This storm didn't just happen randomly. This storm is demonic in origin. This is an attempt to kill Jesus and his followers and stop the spread of the kingdom of God for the first time when it is threatening a non-Jewish area. He rebukes the sea. Jesus only rebukes in the gospel demons. And very interestingly, if you read your Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, all the way through the Psalms, there are continual references to chaotic, destructive, out-of-control storms being connected to the evil one. And why I know this, all scholars will go this direction. It's even deeper than this. If you look at this description of the, all, of the thing we all can't wait for, when Jesus returns and he brings the new heavens and the new earth, right, and the new Jerusalem comes down, I was always confused by this little phrase because it said in the middle, and there was no what? See. I'm like, don't you like water? I want to see. I want to sit up in heaven, mm, sit by the lake for a long time. That is not what's being stated. What it's saying is the evil one is no longer present. This is no regular storm. This is an attempt to stop the Son of God. And when you know what happens next, you will see the connection. Now, the disciples don't even know the real origin of the storm. So Jesus looks at them, everything's calm, and he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no trust? Do you still have no belief? Do you still have no faith? They were, what's the word? Terrified. And asked each other, who is this guy that even wind and waves obey him? I just want to point out something matters for today. It's going to happen again in a minute. Much of the time when God acts the closest and most profoundly, It causes not joy, but fear and terror, even in followers. They look at him and they're like, who are you? And he doesn't answer them. Well, back to the story. The storm is gone. I'm sure they are soaking wet, trying to dry off, trying to comprehend what just happened. They went from, I'm going to die, to what a lovely boat ride this evening, The disciples still don't understand the goal of why they're crossing to reach something. They don't even get it. Why would we even go to a non-Jewish area? We're forbidden. We're Jews. You always want to avoid that. Yet Jesus has demanded they do this. And there's some reason. He's always got a reason. But what they don't understand is Jesus has intention to reach one person. To encounter only one person on the other side of the lake. Which in the end, that person will introduce the non-Jewish world to Jesus himself. Well, the boat came to the shore. And then, if the story wasn't weird enough, something else happened. The most eerie of cries came up from a graveyard on a distant hill. As the moon is coming up, 
a shadow of a man suddenly emerges and starts running out of one of the graves that had been carved, carved into the hillside. Very little clothing, deep cuts all across his body. But what was in him had been waiting for Jesus. What was in him had started the storm. What was in him geared up for a fight. This man screeching, his self-mutilation, the unhuman voices, the unnatural control, the only food that he actually ate was left as memorial to the dead by the living. Tattered clothes all symbolized the wreckage of his life, the non-shalom reality of his everyday existence. I'm sure the disciples froze at this moment. But Jesus, well, he got into the boat, and he started walking right at the coming danger. Here in this moment is one of the greatest, most elaborate, most visual encounters between Jesus, the most high God, and the demonic. I love when one scholar said these words, wherever Jesus goes, his holy presence acts like some chemical catalyst that triggers an immediate reaction from the unholy. Mark 5.1, so they went across the lake to this region, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit or an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, when we read that in English, we miss what's happening. When I grew up in a church just like this, I was taught this wrong. See, in English, it looks like the man is coming to meet Jesus to get help. No. The man is filled with such evil. The man is not running to meet Jesus. What is in him is forcing the man to run at Jesus and attack Jesus. See, in Greek, the word meet is not, hello, I'd like to say hi to you and welcome. It says this, at the man rushed out of the graves and immediately started accosting Jesus, getting in Jesus' face. This is an intense moment of assault, not submission. It said that this man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This man lived among the dead, and the people who loved him and did not love him tried to bind him so he would not hurt himself or hurt them or others. This is a weird action of mercy, desperation, and anger blended into one act. Now, the word bind in Greek was used for taming wild animals. No one could tame this human being. And so, because of his condition, he lives as an outcast by society standards. But most hurtful, what we always must do is stop and be reminded that this is someone's little boy. This is someone's kid. This is a human being possessed by wickedness. So bad the situation was that it records in Mark that he had been often chained hand and foot, but he would tear the chains apart and broke the irons of his feet, and no one, no one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. Wildly shrieking, cutting his flesh with sharp stones, he dwelled among the dead who would never ever be disturbed by his echoes in the night. Now this self-mutilation and this brokenness at a core, it is not psychological. This is not mental illness. Do not be an arrogant modernist today and think that ancient people could not distinguish between things. 
This is not something that is organic. This is not something chemical. This self-mutilation, this brokenness is actually incarnate evil, a demonic presence within him attempting to destroy and distort this man. Why? The demonic love being in human beings because we are made in the image of God. And since they could not find the throne and gain the throne in heaven, the second throne in the universe where God resides is in the human heart. That is why they love and they love to be in human beings. So this living death among the tombs is about to be confronted by the only one through his perfect birth and his perfect life and his perfect ministry and his perfect death and his perfect resurrection and his perfect ascension would overcome it. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he came and ran and fell on his knees in front of him. By the way, this is still not the man. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? God, swear to God that you will not come and torture me. Now what's very striking is this. When I grew up listening and knowing this passage... I had the image of my head of this man running up to Jesus and confessing Jesus right. No. This confession is not a confession at all. This is not even the man speaking. This is the demon speaking. And see, this is not something cowering before Jesus and not being able to resist. Not true. These actions are hostile, defiant, offensive. And see, in ancient times, read the scholars on this. In ancient times, it was taught in every place that you could overcome a spiritual power by knowing their name. So these demons are not confessing Jesus. They're trying to overcome Jesus by saying, we know your name and we know what your power is. We've got your number, Jesus. We're here to attack you. You can't be here yet. And then it says, what do you want with me? Which in Greek literally reads, what have you and I in common? Why are you interfering with me? It's not our time yet. You have no right to be present here. This is not confession This is attempt to control. This is attempting to render Jesus harmless, to break Jesus, to win the day, and not only keep this man owned in slavery, but actually own the region. As hell is standing and fighting with all of its might, it still is panicking. Because within the same breath of trying to overcome Jesus, suddenly the demonics say, swear to God that you won't torture me. By the way, the word torture is not a normal word. The word torture in the New Testament, this word is used in Matthew 18, Luke 16, and Revelation 18. It is always connected to the end of time. Do not, do swear to me that you have not brought the great white throne judgment. Swear to me that you are now not going to cast me in to the eternal fire. See, the kingdom of darkness, you want a lesson on how to stand against evil? The kingdom of darkness fears the end. The power of the future has direct effect on their current state and influence. They understand that Jesus has the power. They know he is the son of man and has the ability to bring their end. But he or they wonder, is this really the time you're supposed to be using it? Now verse 8 gets this even more interesting. Watch what happens. For Jesus had said to him, 
Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Uh Uh-oh. Jesus has already commanded that this wickedness leave. Jesus has already commanded that this man be free. They must leave. Their creator, Jesus, their creator, commands the son be free. No more cutting. No more killing. No more howling. No living among the dead. This ends. But stop and notice this morning, it does not happen right away. There is a battle. Jesus commands their leaving, and they do not. See, the kingdom of darkness, I'm so tired of churches teaching their people that Satan is a toothless lion. He is not. He may be defeated, but he has great power. And let me say again with authority, if he can resist the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, he's going to resist us too, right? So Jesus, God in flesh, commands this thing to leave so this man can encounter him and they resist him. That is why later in the book of Ephesians, Paul would say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Wrestle means time. It doesn't just happen like that. The first time I started dealing with the demonic, I always wondered what I was doing wrong. Like I said Jesus' name and they wouldn't leave. Like, do I need to turn up the Hillsong music louder? Right? Do I need to yell louder? No, no. Wrestle. Then Jesus asked him, not the man, by the way. The man's not even present yet. What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. One voice singular, representing not hundreds, but thousands. See, Jesus says, well, you try overcoming me, but actually I'm going to overcome you. What's your name again? Well, we're Legion. Now, here's the absolutely devastating statement. In Jesus' day, legion, of course, is a military term, a Roman term. 6,000 soldiers and 120 cavalry. This man had over 6,000 demons in him. Now, all the mathematicians, I know what you're doing, and all the engineers, no, 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 hold on. You're drawing a box. How do they all fit in there? That doesn't equal their... Stop. That world does not work like your bridge building. This man is inhabited. This is not metaphorical. This is true. This poor human being is inhabited by over 6,000 angels that chose at the beginning of time that Lucifer was their God and God should be resisted and they've been fighting God ever since and this is another clash in the great battle. This man is so demonized that any time anyone would try to help him, he would just snap things because he was so empowered by wickedness. He begged Jesus Again and again, not to send them out of the area. Not the man, the demons. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside, and and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go to them. The demons begged Jesus after now they concede their defeat, that, that would you just let us stay? See Jesus over there? See those pigs? See, let us just stay in, in those things. See, this enforces, A, this is a non-Jewish area, and the unclean reality of the story, just like tax collecting, pig herding was forbidden for Jews. You weren't even allowed to keep pigs. Send us into the most unholy of things. Interesting, they wanted to stay in the area. Why? We don't know. Many people believe that they maybe had authority in the region 
or had been invited into the region or were worshipped in the region. Maybe they had been sent. Maybe they had geographical influence. We don't know why, but they are determined to stay in that place. And wildly, unexpectedly, and we don't know why, Jesus says, okay. So he gave them permission. He gave them permission. Verse 13. And the evil spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs. Can I just say how powerful that is? Who, he gave them permission. Who wins? No, say it. Jesus. So the demons leave the man and they go into the pigs and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, which, by the way, just notice that, and they were drowned. Jesus allows them to stay, but he defeats them. The time for ultimate judgment has not yet come yet, and so he allows them to continue their destructive work, but no longer in this man. But don't miss the action in the pigs. When those 6,000 plus demons leave, they enter, and all they bring again is death and destruction and living death. Their DNA, see, you've got to understand what a demon is. A demon is not a ghost. A demon is not an embodied, an unembodied spirit. Demons are angels that chose the wrong side. They are sentient beings. They're powerful beings. But all demons are unlove, unjoy, unpeace, unpatience, unkindness, ungoodness, unfaithfulness, ungentleness, unself-control. The word evil or unholy spirit means a spirit that is out of order, a spirit that is not sure a spirit that is the reverse of holiness. And so they leave. 2,000 pigs in chaotic unison scream and squeal and they hurdle themselves to their death. Well, how do you think the pig farmers reacted? Did they go, mm, praise God, let's rejoice. This is so exciting. Look at the man, he's been made right. Let's have a, let's have, let's have a testimony time. Let's, mercy has been given. It's salvation. This is so... No! This grand recovery of what had been inappropriately given at Eden was met with one emotion. Fear. Let me say this again. When God works in very profound ways, much of the time within the community of faith and outside, it is never received with joy. It is actually run away from. It is called fearful, dangerous, and scary. Don't miss the economic downturn this would have caused. 2,000 pigs is a lot of someone's money. In time, their RSPs just drowned. The work of God has crashed the temporal for eternal. Now those who were present, because it says later there, there were people present, they didn't own the pigs. They're responsible for taking care of the pigs. They don't want to be blamed or be sued. So what do they do? Realizing their job is at stake, they make sure that someone else knows who's responsible Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man. They saw the man who had been demonized, possessed by that legion of demons, sitting there, dressed in his right mind. And they were so joyful, excited, exuberant. No, afraid. The radical, conversionistic, life-changing experience when meeting Christ was so profound, so foreign, so shocking, it causes fear in them, not worship. Well, it then says that the people got really afraid. 
Those that had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man as well as the pigs. In verse 17, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The crowd tells Jesus, get out. Leave. This is too weird. You're too powerful. You're too dangerous. You're doing things that are humanly not possible. You cause recession. We don't want you around here. People are looking over the escarpment at 2,000 swine in all shapes and sizes. Leave now, they demand. The confusion, the mob, the yelling, the threats. I'm sure the disciples are arguing back. Yet Jesus, he's just sitting there looking at the man. He's sitting Right there, quiet, the, the screaming that's gone, the voices. It'd be the first time in so many years it was just him, death removed. I imagine at that moment their eyes locked. He looks at Jesus, Jesus looks at him, Jesus smiles, heaven smiles. The crowd's about to get ugly and it's almost like in the story Jesus went, okay, we're done here, let's go back. Jesus gets into the boat. Verse 18. The man who had been demonized begged to go with him. Wouldn't you? In one word, you do this for me? My whole life, gone. And you show up and you came for me. I wasn't looking for you. I couldn't even ask you for help. Things kept speaking on my behalf. Please, I gotta go with you. And Jesus said, no. No, no. No, you go home now. You go to your mom and your dad and your aunts and your uncles. You go to your brothers and sisters. You go to your family and you tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he has had on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Can you imagine the knock? Mom opens the door. And sees her son right again. Who did this to you? There was this Jewish guy who just showed up. And he made me clean. I got to tell you about him. I must tell you about him. This man is given the great, first, lonely, difficult task of going back to those who threw, them, threw him out. Going back to those who wanted to force him out. Going back to those who chained him. But he went back understanding that by the power of Jesus, by word and deed, he had been changed. And so he goes back for the first time, by the way, in the narratives, first time in the Gospels, and begins to tell the world that God is going to give the world a second chance. See, don't miss this in the grand orchestration of God in history. What did the angels chant to the shepherds? A savior has been born to you and he's going to be for what? All people. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. At the birth of the church, when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost, they spoke in multiple tongues. The reverse of Babel has begun. The new kingdom is coming. And Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The very first missionary that is sent out into most of our world as non-Jews is a formerly demon-possessed man who had no hope of encounter and Jesus set him free and he started declaring to non-Jews God's coming for us too. 
Now let me say a few things as we end. The power of Jesus has not changed. Every deliverance that Jesus was doing was a sign of inaugurated eschatology. Every single time he did it, it was a symbol of what would be accomplished on the cross and what we would all experience in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 John 3, 8, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. One of my favorite verses in the Bible on this topic, Colossians 2, 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What he did with legion would be fully accomplished by the cross, and every single time any Christian around the world of any stripe in Jesus' name sets other people free, the work of the cross is still being applied today, and the kingdom of darkness keeps, get, keeps getting beat back. Disarm means to put off, to take off, to strip off. Jesus strips the principalities and powers of their power, their importance, their potency. He takes back what they stole in Eden. He takes back everything that they have that would lead us as human beings to honor them, worship them, fear them, or be owned by them. It's broken. And he doesn't just disarm them. It says that Jesus triumphed over them. Like I've shared in our community before, this comes from the world of war. When Caesar or a general would win a great war, he would come into Rome with a victorious army, and the general would be at the front, and the army that he had fought and led with would be behind him. But behind the army would be the vanquished army, and they would be in chains, and they would be publicly humiliated and publicly overcome. They had become a spectacle. This is what the scriptures declare about Lucifer and all those that chose the wrong side before the beginning of time. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he made them walk behind him, and he dethroned them. He disarmed them. His di their dignity and splendor was removed. They now are weak and numbed and bo broken and beleaguered. And this is what Christ did. He made them acknowledge in the heavenly realms that they had lost. Because he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And so, so critical that we understand that what Jesus was doing in the gospels, what he fully accomplished in the heavens is still happening today through his church. Every single time Christians in humility reach out to people in the name of Jesus, the kingdom of God advances and they cannot overcome the church. The gates of hell will never overcome the church because our head has won all things. Now here's my question this morning. Are you, lead, are you the person filled with legion? Are you watching online? You, who, no matter where you are, are you sitting here today? Are you this person? Are you the person who says, that's me. I've never talked about this. And I know, I, I've checked out the mental stuff. It's deeper than this. That insatiable, bizarre sense of evil in the gut of who I am. The constant voices. Everything that's holy, I can't get near. Every time I go near a pastor, things go sideways. I just want to be free and I cannot. Here's what you are asked to do in your deep brokenness. Ask Jesus this this morning. Will you let me drown? Will you keep letting me live in the tombs? Free me. I've got nothing else left. Jesus' half-brother, James, wrote it like this. 
And this is for you who are not Christians but think you might be demonized. Here it is, ready? James 4, 7. You submit yourself to God, you resist the devil. He will what? He must flee. This is a story of liberation which at this moment in God's sovereign holiness has decided for some of you to hear in this time. God offers you through Jesus' son liberation. Jesus did not have to cross that lake. Jesus did not have to deal with that storm. Jesus did not have to deal with evil. Jesus did not have to put up with that crowd, but he did. Why? Because our God is love. And he wants to serve people so they can be restored to the dignity they used to have in Eden. And he wants to restore us so we can live for the glory of God and not under the tyranny of Satan. Jesus comes for the world and for you. God takes the initiative to cross the lake to meet you. That's what's happening right now in this service. He has come by the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and by the spirit of Christ to meet you. And what's so beautiful about the good news of Jesus, he does this with many of us that live in a land across a lake and filled with unholiness, with demons and pigs. All you must do is call upon Jesus in the court. If you can't even speak like that man could with inside of your insides of your insides, you say, Jesus, you forgive me. I repent. I turn. I need your freedom and eternal life. Let me say again these words to you this morning, no matter who you are. Without Jesus, your life will be filled with ambition or moralism or dedicated religion or experiential sexuality or money or power or even incarnate evil, which always turns your life into a graveyard. But Jesus offers forgiveness, purpose in life, eternal life, and freedom. It just costs you your life. What will you do with Jesus? If you're that person sitting here this morning and you just cannot believe this is happening, but you know that you know that you know that they are present in you, then you pray this right now. Say, Jesus Christ, help me. Come into my storm and calm it. Command silence in me because nothing's worked. Tell them to leave because I can't. Have mercy on me, Jesus. For all the sin I've committed, I'm sorry. I repent. Whether I, whether I let them in or I didn't, I just, I need life, eternal life now. Save me from death and evil and sin. I want to sit in a right mind and tell other people about Jesus next. I pray this for the first time in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that afterwards, we'll have some prayer people here. Come speak to them. Two other thoughts. We're the only one who has the answer for this one. We're it. Psychology is needed. I believe in therapy. Been there. Go team. Really. Doctors, we need them. Wisdom. But I'm telling you, the only movement on earth 
that has the same power that Jesus did is the local church. No one else deals with this problem like us. And I want to say to the church again this morning, though it's scary and uncomfortable and we don't like this conversation, let me just say to you, Jesus goes where the action is. Fear was never strong enough to stop him from reaching out to people in extreme brokenness. And this is one of the most extreme forms of brokenness. Because you can be the richest person on earth or unbelievably poor, but still have evil reside in you and not be free. And I just want to say, I want to remind you that we walk under the same power that Jesus did as a church. And if you know someone who struggles with this on any level, from temptation to oppression, from the overwhelming to the weird, to outright control. Don't dismiss it. Don't run. I want to remind you, Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to us as the church, you go into all the world and you preach the gospel to all creation, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. I just remind you this morning, Jesus came for Nicodemus and the adulterous woman. He also came for the rich young ruler. He came for Zacchaeus. He came came for Saul. And he comes for people like this. And I just want to again remind the church, do not be afraid of the evil one. Do not run. Do not cower. Stand, church. Stand. And don't just stand for yourself. Stand for others. And when the day of evil comes, do not fear, because the same power that Jesus dealt with legion actually is in the most, actually is in all of us in this room that are believers. We are the only ones who have the answer for this. Help people, help people, pray for people, stand for people. Why don't we end by doing this? Why don't we stand together and do two things? Number one, could we actually thank Jesus together that he did this for all of us? Don't lose focus. Let me say it like this. We may not have all had legion in us, but Paul is clear that we were all once under the dominion of darkness, right? And we've been brought into light. When's the last time we as a church or you as an individual just said, thank you, for breaking their, their bondage over me. Have you done that? I can tell you there are hundreds of people who would stand in this church and say, I was the person with legion and I am free. Right, right there. No, really. No, it's not true. But let's do this. Lord Jesus Christ, sent from the Father by the Spirit. Thank you. Thank you that every Christian on earth has been set free from this power. That we, we, we once were owned by the spirit of the air, but now, but now, but now because of God the Father's calling and the Son's work and the Spirit's presence, we are now owned by Jesus. And oh, how we love being owned by Jesus. Thank you as a church. Thank you for delivering us from the evil one. Thank you. We may not experientially know it like that man did, but positionally it's true. But as we've been doing every week, Lord, we, we come before you for the region. And we've wrestled with you. We keep wrestling with you, asking and begging you to show up in power that transcends all the programs of the church and all the human ability. And we say, so Father, Son, Spirit, 
Would you look? We know you see all things, but look. Look at all the people in our region that are people like this man. Some of them unbelievably successful. Others of them completely a disaster. But in their heart, there are things in them that own them, live in them, and they may not even understand they're there. So Jesus, like you decided to do where you crossed a lake and walked into a graveyard filled with pigs and death, come, Lord Jesus Christ, come and start setting people free. Well, we again, we pray this last week, we welcome you, Jesus, into our region. We welcome you, whether through the church that you do this ministry or sovereignly by yourself. We bring hundreds of thousands of people before you we don't know by name and say, here's maybe the prayer, every place where a demon is working, we now ask Jesus you'd show up right there. Thank you for the power. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for making a mockery of our enemy. Thank you that you're willing to cross places. Come, Lord, do this ministry in this region so much that people will be in their right mind and will go back to their families and friends and said, I am free and I've met Jesus Christ. Oh, act, God. Oh, act. Oh, act, we ask. Praise be to God the Father, whoever, forever and ever is pure and holy and without sin. Praise be to his, his eternal Son, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, our great high priest, our great warrior. Praise be to the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to keep bringing the kingdom of God in every generation into the darkness, so light, light can be found. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.